here for a special Sunday episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics with the great man Everald Compton. How are we doing, Ev? Well, Everald, not so great. He takes him longer to get out of bed every morning now. I'm getting to be a, you know, if, if, if I was a horse, the farmer would take me down the back paddock and shoot me, but I managed to get to the computer, uh, you know, on time. So I'm, I'm doing all right. And you, you're prospering as Australia's most famous young solicitor, are you, James? <laughs> uh, thriving <laughs> or surviving. I don't know which one it is yet, but we're certainly moving forward. So, Well, let me get into some legal issue or legal moral issues. Asylum seekers, refugees. We have 35 of them who've appeared in two places up in the Kimberley. And Peter Dutton's running around saying it's a failure of government policy now. I can't see for the life of me how Albo should sit at home at, uh, at the lodge and uh, keep a track of all the boats and planes belonging to Australian border force and make sure they're looking for boats and getting in the border force obviously missed these boats. Now, there's no evidence that Albo gave the border force any different instructions to the ones they had from Keating, as they had from uh, Dutton and, and Morrison. And, but the point is they're saying is Elbow has now, you know, let these in, which which I think is, uh, you know, a, a, a gross nonsense. Well, let me go back a bit. Uh, way back when I was a boy, or not when I was a boy, 50 years ago or 70 years ago it might have been, the United Nations passed a legislation on asylum seekers, which every parliament in the world, if they wanted to, had to sign up to, and Australia way back. Yeah, signed up to it. I think it was back in the Menzies era. It doesn't quite matter. But not long after the war. And it said that if a person who is a genuine refugee, that's a person who's fleeing from a situation where they, they're going to get killed or they're going to get imprisoned or and tortured or whatever, if a genuine refugee arrives at your border, which in our case is our shores, if they're genuine, you're obliged to take them under the United Nations Convention that we sign. Now, there's all sorts of, as you know from legal documents, little words here and there that you can use as an excuse to get out of it. But nevertheless, we adhered to that principle. Now, it's a different thing if people are economic refugees. I mean, while I have sympathy with people who are starving and want somewhere else, the fact is the treaty said that their life has to be threatened. Well, you can almost say... Uh, hunger is a life-threatening thing, but, uh, but 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 anyway, the issue is that Australia has got an obligation to accept anybody who's a genuine refugee. Now, it worried me that Albo came out, and it's obviously covering his backside against uh, Dutton to say, uh, uh, you know, they will not be given refuge in Australia. Now, I don't think we've had five minutes to work out whether these people are genuine refugees or whether they're not. And if they're a genuine refugee, they should stay here. If they're not, okay, send them to Nauru or somewhere, although I think that's a hellhole. But what I want to say, James, is we have an obligation to take refugees. Now, how do you see this situation? Well, I mean, we were horrible and fearful and racist and, uh, you know, refugees were used to divide and scare people under Howard. The following Labor governments of Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard did not stop that trend. They did not turn around and say, hang on, John, you were grossly breaching our international obligations to take in 
refugees and people whose lives are in danger overseas. Instead, the following Labor governments sort of, con- not not as loudly, but continued down a path of broadly anti-refugee sentiment. And then obviously Tony Abbott swept the power on anti-refugee sentiment, stop the boats, stop the boats. Uh, and Morrison, of course, had his little plaque on his desk that said, I stop the boats. Now, it's it's like a, a hallmark of Australian politics over the, this millennium. Probably the, one of the single strongest forces in Australian politics has been hating refugees, fearing refugees, mm. and wanting to do every... Like, it's a, it's a crime to say, hold on, maybe we should respect these people's human rights. Maybe we should allow people who are fearing and fleeing from life-threatening situations to come to our country. You can't say that. Uh, and, like, if you say that, you'll be jumped on by the media. If Albo were to get up tomorrow and say, Australia welcomes people fleeing from um, death and persecution in foreign countries for their beliefs, their faith, or their politics, if Albo gets up and says that tomorrow, every media outlet will be running wall-to-wall coverage of Peter Dutton saying Albo's letting criminals and rapists and pedophiles and murderers into the country. Uh, and they will do so uncritically. And I think the um, I was watching Insiders this morning, and rather than talking about the human rights implications of this boat of, and the people on this boat and the situations these people are fleeing and the situations in these countries these people are coming from, all they talked about on Insiders was the political implications for Albo and the political implications for Dutton of what's going on. And I think that reflects a real rot because there's no even thought given to empathy with these people. It's just straight into this topic of what's the perception of this going to be for Albo. And it's a bunch of talking heads in the media who control what the perception is, talking about what the perception will be without a second thought given to sort of self-reflection and thinking critically on uh, the situation these people are coming from or our obligations under international law. So I think you're entirely right, Evelyn. Yeah, well, it, it's a, and this is a perennial situation that comes up. Now, look, we have to admit that the world has got a, a huge refugee crisis at the moment. So we're going to take the Australian thing in context of it, which in my view means Australia's got to take more because we've got an empty continent. We've got 25 million people in a continent that's larger than main, mainland United States, which has got 350 million people. So we're not actually overcrowded, you know, out around the Kimberleys and all those places. Yeah, but there's an awful big, for instance, Italy has got a tremendous problem, and Greece, because people from Libya are coming by boats every day in great masses, and Italy and Greece can't cover them. All these people are fleeing because Libya is now controlled by six different warlords who hate one another's guts, shooting at one another all the time. And if you happen to be in the territory controlled by a warlord, the guys in the other five warlords, they're going to shoot you as well. So as far as people, because they can't go anywhere in, in Libya without getting shot in this fight between six warlords. So they get the boat and go to Italy or Greece. And they come in there hunt. Some of them die on the water. But the fact that Mazis are genuine refugees, they haven't got one lot trying to kill them, they've got six lots trying to kill them. So how do we handle this enormous influx? I mean, I think um, 
it's it's just a case of every country has to do more. And it, it's such a shame that in Western countries, racism is such a motivating political force because you're seeing anti-refugee sentiment prop up far-right parties in Germany, in the Netherlands, in France, in Sweden, Poland. in Hungary, yeah, in Poland, pretty much all across Europe and indeed um, the English-speaking West, the Anglosphere. We see right-wing parties time and time again rely on anti-refugee sentiment to drum up fear in the population. And they are ably assisted by a willing media and they are ably assisted by individuals who do not want to look deeper into these people's problems and do not want to empathise with the situations these refugees are coming in. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of like you and I, uh, we can sort of talk here about the situations these people are fleeing from. But, you know, touch wood, we will never know what it feels like to be fleeing persecution like that and to be living through persecution. Uh, I cannot fathom the pressure someone must be under to want to jump on a rickety boat and cross the Mediterranean, knowing their life is at risk to do so. Um, like the what, what, how bad things must be to motivate someone to do that. Um, An you know, awful situation. Now, one of the problems we have in Australia, that the main group, now there's lots of people against refugees. The main group against refugees are fundamentalist Christians, not all Christians. There are many moderate traditional Christians who want to do the right thing. But we have you know, a, a lot of right-wing fundamentalist guys doing it now. And they say the Bible, in amongst all the other things they say, they say the Bible is true in every word. Well, I got my Bible out last night and I looked at the part of the New Testament where it records that Mary and Joseph decided that King Herod was going to kill them and young Jesus. So they got on a horse and they went all the way to Egypt where they stayed for several years, came back after Herod died. And so Jesus, Joseph and Mary and Jesus were genuine refugees. Luckily, they didn't have to go to Australia. They went to Egypt. And Egypt didn't have an offshore processing centre back when Jesus arrived. They didn't have a Nauru they could send them to. So he went there. And so here's these fundamentalist Christians against refugees. Well, they were against Jesus, if that's the case. Now, how do you handle that, James? No, you're 110% correct. And I mean, um, you know, like Moses parting the Red Sea and leading his people across the desert. Um, just there's, there's so many examples in the Bible of these people fleeing persecution and going on great trials and great yeah, pilgrimages yeah. To, um, to find a new home. And yeah, you know, the, if, if, if that story happened and they tried to come to Australia today, um, rather than the cradle in Bethlehem, the, the baby Jesus would have been born in a four by six cell on Nauru. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, e e exactly right. So it seems to me that in Australia we've got to grow up about refugees. Yep. Now people say, "Oh, look, we've got too much population. We can only." The fact is, we've got too much population in our capital cities. We've got the most underdeveloped continent in the world. About. 70% of our population is in the main capital city. So we're not overcrowded anywhere. And these people come, most of these people, refugees, come from countries where the, the weather's hot and things like that. 
We could set up TAFE colleges all over remote Western Australia, the Northern Territory, Northern Queensland, uh, in, in communities where the people arrive, we train them up to do work, but they learn to do make things, they learn to sell them. They've got to stay there a certain number of years and then they can do it. And, and we could develop our inland in a way that it's never been. Now, I'm not saying we put up an ad to say, you know, refugees come here, but when they come, we're organised to train them, to give them skills, to show them the way of life. They learn the Australian way of life out in remote places. Then after they've done that, they're entitled to go anywhere, but they become Aussies in that point. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, I mean, yeah, like the, the only reason people think we're overcrowded is because, yeah, we don't have good enough infrastructure and we don't have enough housing. Like we build more houses, we build more trains, we build more rail, especially rail going to and from rural areas and good rail, fast rail. Suddenly the population of this country could quadruple overnight and no one would notice. Like it's it's a real self-enforced overpopulation problem that we have in this country. And it's because we don't build stuff. Um, and you know what? You know, like, you know, we always talk about um, construction and jobs for um, blue-collar workers and that. One of the best ways to ensure that um, tradies and the like have jobs is to build a frickload of housing, a frickload of rail, trains, etc., to allow more people to move into this country and deserving people. Because you talk to anyone who has fled a tragic situation, um, they are so grateful and some of the most patriotic Australians we have going around because they are so proud of a country that has taken them in um, and has given them the opportunity to live life. Well, true. Well, let's go to a totally different thing at the moment and talk about Taylor Swift. Now, you are the sort of age, you're the right age for Taylor Swift could fall in love with you, James, like that footballer bloke, uh, you know, over there in the uh, Super Bowl. But Taylor Swift turned and 96,000 people turn up at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. There's another two lots concerts on people paying hundreds of dollars to get in. Now, I've only heard Taylor Swift sing once, and, and I'm an old bloke who, who loves old-time music. I don't you want me to sing, I, I want the old-time opera singers and whatever you so I'm not a, but she's got a presence and she's got a skill, and but she doesn't sing my sort of music. Now, it's a phenomenon. There are people who actually, and this doesn't worry me, I'm not saying this because I'm a church elder, mate, but uh, it, it, people have got gods everywhere. And at the moment, she is a god because she represents something that governments don't give people, that societies don't give people. She uplifts people in a way that old blokes like me wouldn't say, well, but for that reason, if she's giving people that joy, and we need a lot more of that, but it also means that people are looking for someone beyond themselves to give them the meaningful life that they want, aren't they? Like she, she's a she's a cultural phenomenon. Like it's you know it's it's hard to live through a time period and pick who that era's Beatles or Elvis or whoever is. But the numbers do not lie. Like the the stadium, the size of the stadiums that Taylor Swift sells out, uh, and the impact of her on local economies. Like you can chart her tour with economic booms in all the capital cities where she tours around the globe. It's just absurd the cultural pull um, that she has at the moment, and it's not just in the West either. Like in in the English speaking world, she's selling out tours in Japan, etc. 
Um, she is just an, an icon and a huge cultural force. I really like her music. I used to be a cynic. I used to be, when I was growing up, I was like, oh, no, that's girl music. I'm not going to listen to that. Um, but a couple of my friends who were Swifties got me to have a have a listen. And, you know, at, at around age 20, I was mature enough to put my hands up and say, yep, I was wrong. She's great. Uh, she rocks. Um, and she's got now a loving boyfriend, in a three-time Super Bowl winner, Travis Kelsey, who um, if I'm ever to have a shot at Taylor Swift, I've got to get past. But uh, watch watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> but the other good thing about her is that in the last election in the United States, presidential, she endorsed Joe Biden and she's endorsed Joe Biden again. So she's one American phenomena that we can see, the rare ones we can see. You don't like Donald Trump, isn't that right? Uh, well, Everald, I, I think you'll find that's because uh, Taylor Swift is a woke idiot uh, who is married to a woke football player uh, who took the woke vaccines. Uh, Travis Kelsey, her, her current boyfriend, um, was was big in appearing in ads for the vaccines and that. That's more woke nonsense. Um, so this is, this is all a, a plot by Biden and the Democrats and the deep state to um, steal the 2024 election. And I think a poll showed about 20% of Americans genuinely believe that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's relationship is a deep state Joe Biden plot to steal the 2024 election. So that is not well, as ridiculous a as a belief. Well, no, it's a ridiculous well, belief, but it's not as foreign a belief to some people. Well, well, well mate, let me tell you that uh, if, if, if Taylor Swift uh, helps Biden over the line... And I'm still worried that Joe's a bit old, but if she helps Joe over the line, I could be, uh, I will take you uh, to a Taylor Swift concert somewhere, James. I mean, it'll be such a phenomenon. I'll, I'll take you there. I'll have to control you, mind you, but we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> no, she's, she's, and she's crazy good. And like you say, she's very uplifting for a lot of people as well because a lot of people, um, especially women, um, grew up sort of listening to Taylor Swift. They had their first, like my generation, had their first heartbreaks listening to Taylor Swift and so on and so forth. And um, they've sort of watched her grow up both musically and as a person, as they have as well. So she's got a lot of pull. But, you know, one of those, another, this is a subject for another day, but, you know, when we find the cures, there's so many different forms of cancer now, you've got to find a cure for each one. The person who eventually finds the cure, you know, is going to be a young person out of university earning not more than 100 grand a year, and they're going to find a vaccine and it's going to save millions of lives, and they're going to continue to get 100 grand a year, but Taylor Swift will get several hundred million a year. Now, I don't deny if Taylor Swift can earn that, I'm happy for her. But it's a bit odd when somebody who does something brilliant with their scientific mind is so underpaid isn't it yeah no no it's i i always look at those things and get a little despondent and for that reason i probably try not to think too much about them um but yeah it's i mean it, you, you you could say the same about a lot of things right like you know jeff jeff bezos invented well he like amazon which is essentially just like the like a, a big online shop where you can get stuff delivered now, if Jeff Bezos doesn't invent that, anyone can come along and invent that realistically. It's not a groundbreaking idea, albeit it was for its time, but 
the concept isn't particularly deep compared to, like you say, cures for deadly diseases. And yet, you know, where does the money go? Well, there we go. Look, time marches on. We've, uh, we've got some good and bad guys. We might need to spend a bit of a bit of time on. Uh, uh, first of all, my good guy of the week is Catherine Murphy, spelled K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E. Now, I've known Catherine Murphy around the corridors of power in Canberra for 30 to 40 years. She's served in the press gallery, writing for a number of newspapers, more recently as political editor of The Guardian, and she's written a number of quarterly essays that the Schwartz Media put out. Now, she was one of those people who reported the news and, 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 and explained the news and, and, and gave an opinion on the news. She never, ever once in her career created news to get a headline. You could always rely on her to come up with a sensible thing, but she'd always think and expand. And I thought that she was, I mean, she's probably, I don't know whether she was the senior member of the press gallery, but she goes close to it. I thought she was one of those decent journalists who could write good stories that you could feel, well, that's a reasonable statement of the situation. She resigned from the gallery because Albo has invited her into his team. She's now in his office in, in a role, I think, in a role of strategy advising and whatever but she's a person who uh, adorned the press gallery for a long time. And, and with the Murdoch media and the and the Channel 9 media and all these people trying to create headlines every day, I'm rather sad that one of the people in the press gallery who didn't follow that line is now gone. But I just wanted to record what a great person she is. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier about how dreadful Insiders was this morning. Um, and like I, I watched about 10 minutes before turning off. I'll always flick on insiders on Sundays when I can to see who's on. And generally, Catherine Murphy was one of the few people who, if she was on it, I would actually be inclined to watch the show. Um, she was always a sensible voice, um, both, you know, in, in The Guardian and in the press gallery and a dying breed, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, well who's your good guy, James? Um, I seem to love filling my Good Guy of the Week column with um, Australian women's sports people, and this week will be no different. Um, the Australian women's cricket team, uh, another crushing defeat uh, of South Africa in the first and only women's test uh, of the series. They played a big series against South Africa with women's tests one day as MT20 internationals. And it's it's just another props to our Aussie women for how good they are, um, how good role models they are, you know, you, we you never we saw Barnaby Joyce um, passed out on the uh, on the footpath in Canberra this week, but you never hear something like that out of the Australian women's cricket team. You only ever hear good things out of the Australian women's cricket team, both in terms of the people and the sports people they are, and their dedication to their work. And I I just yet yet again I call for more funding and more exposure. The cricket's done pretty well in terms of funding and exposure, but. Um, yeah, our Aussie women just do such good work and they're an inspiration to so many girls and boys around the country. Well, I, I, I don't, you know, watch the whole game. I watch the play, you know, the reports of it, get the scores, which I don't watch men's game either. I just look at the main thing. The demeanour of the Australian women, they, they're always neat and tidy. They always behave well. They don't yell at umpires. Their general demeanour around the field is a hell of a lot better than the guys. And 
they're not amateurs. I mean, some of the sixes and straight drives they do, uh, you know, would make uh, Ricky Ponting, you know, look a bit of an amateur, uh, you know. So I, I think there is a quality about them that's quite refreshing. Yeah, no, they're, they're incredibly good sports people and people, and it's it's role models like that who I think we need for our country. So who's your bad guy, at? Well, it's the whole Russian police. As you know, Navalny, uh, the, the only opposition that Putin's had or likely to have because he suppressed it all, the guy he tried to poison, then he locked him under, tortured him, locked him up up in the Arctic Circle, and all of a sudden when he's out having a walk, he has to turn and die. Well, obviously they gave him a tablet with his breakfast or something or other. They, he was murdered. I've got not the slightest doubt he's murdered. But people who yearn for some democracy to happen in Russia and who admire how he's under extraordinarily difficult things, you know, stood up to Putin, they've been turning up in public squares in Russia and simply putting flowers and candles down for, for him. And Russian police have been coming forward and, disturb, and arresting them for disturbing the peace because they put the flowers on this guy's grave. Now, can you get a more appalling nation than one that arrests people for lighting a candle in honour of someone who died? Now, can you get a worse nation than that, man? Well, that is absolutely appalling. And I tell you what, Ev, my bad guy of the week is the Australian Federal Police because it's broken this week um, in Senate estimates due to David Shoebridge, excellent work from the New South Wales Green Senator, that the Australian Federal Police, they found this 13-year-old autistic boy on the internet who had an IQ of 71, so nearly three standard deviations below the mean. And he was just Googling, like, Islam stuff on, on his computer. Um, and the Australian Federal Police sent out a covert undercover guy to pose as a radical imam and radicalize this 13-year-old boy. Uh, and then eventually, after pushing from the AFP undercover guy, this 13-year-old boy sent the imam a photo of a knife with the word ISIS written on it uh, and the um, Google, like, how to make a bomb. And then the AFP arrested the autistic 13-year-old boy um, who they set up and radicalised um, off their own bat. So the the Russian police have done some pretty horrible things and it's it's just an exercise of pure dictatorial power. Um, but there, there is some pretty shonky stuff going on in um, our police forces too, I might add. <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I've, I, I've been following that thing with the Australian Federal Police, and look, I, uh, I, I uh, agree with you. I mean, if you have an autistic child, that they've got to be handled in in in, in a the, the 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 right way. The one thing that they miss in their lives is uh, they 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 don't seem to be able to express love and empathy. This is a generalisation. And to, to sort of think that a kid of that age is, is, is some sort of threat to the nation. And if you know he's autistic and you go to this length to destroy him, that primitive. What worried me was that when they were called up before the Senate to account for it, 
there was not one bit of remorse in their souls. They said they'd do it again, you know, and that's bad. So they put them in the same ranks as Russia, although it'd be hard to get to the same ranks as Russia because it's not just the fact that the Russians are arresting people, lighting candles from the valley. Uh, you can get arrested in Russia for the slightest reasons. There can be no dissent against the state. And in fact, if you show any dissent about the Ukraine war, you're in hellishing big trouble, you know. And so it's, it's a primitive. It, it, you can only describe it all as primitive, can't you? No, 110%. Um, it's it's backwards. It's, well, it's, it's, it's a dictatorship. You know, Ru Russia is a dictatorship. Um, and, like, using the police to enforce the will of the one party who controls power is a hallmark of a dictatorship. It's probably the quintessential hallmark, along with, um, you know, coming after defence lawyers and labelling enemies of the state criminals. So, um, incidentally, just as an aside, Donald Trump has admitted he wants to do those exact same things and admires how Putin does them. So, hmm, something to think about. Ah, oh, but Poor old Donald, he's got to pay the $350 million American dollars for something that he was absolutely set up about, you know. Uh, you know, you've got to feel sorry for Donald, haven't you, mate? Yeah, yeah, you the... ever got somebody send you a bill for $350 million, mate? Have you ever had that, haven't you? Oh, well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm manipulating the radical lefty judges and the American <laughs> justice system in these uh, Democrat <laughs> states. I'm, I'm, I'm their friend, so... Uh... <laughs> well, there we are. Look, it's, it's, it's been it's been a good uh, it's been a good chat, mate. We've had a good one. Yeah. So, and I look forward to uh, I look forward to next uh, next week. So between now and next weekend, I want you to have sorted out the Australian federal police. If you got that, I want to report on what you've done to sort them out, mate. Yeah, no, they will be shaking in their boots, Ev. I am sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Well, thanks, James. We'll talk next week. Yeah, thanks, Bye Sam. Thanks for listening, everyone. Ciao for now.